So, Faye, it's getting really close to July, and so that means that there's going to be a lot of new folks coming into the hospital, and they're all going to be asking not only, oh my God, you're the Cuyahoga River Coffee people, but also what can you read or what can you do? Yeah, definitely. One of the biggest things that I use to help me study, both for um, my oral boards that are coming up, but also just in my general everyday life, is actually the OBG Project. Yeah, in particular for residents, they have an exclusive resource right now called the Resident Core, um, which is a comprehensive resource for education, kind of like an open source curriculum. Um, it's free to all residents. You just head on over to our website at creagsovercoffee.com or to the OBG Project website, and you can learn more and get signed up. Absolutely. And if you are a fourth year resident, if you're a rising chief, you can actually get OBG first absolutely free, which is their premium subscription process um, that allows you to create your own libraries and bookmark some of your favorite articles from the website. So again, if you're interested, head on over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com. You can check out the sidebar and find out how to get either that free year of OBG first as a chief resident or to get signed up for the resident core for every other resident out there. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. So today we're going to be talking about obesity and pregnancy based off of the new ACOG Practice Bulletin 230. So Nick, what are our learning objectives? So first we'll actually define obesity. Um, and we'll also define the different classes of obesity because there are different levels, so to speak. Um, next, we'll discuss obesity and its impacts on pregnancy. And then finally, we'll review preconception counseling as well as ultimately the management of obesity and pregnancy. Again, one more time, if you're reading along ACOG practice bulletin number 230, it's just freshly released in June of 21, will be sort of your guide for this podcast. So Faye, I guess let's start off with the definitions. Um, what is obesity? How do we categorize it? What things do we need to know? So obesity is classified by BMI or the body mass index. And I know that a lot of people take issue with the BMI because you know it doesn't always accurately depict health or body fat percentage, but unfortunately it's kind of the thing that we have that is easiest to measure. And it's based off of weight as well as height. The practice bulletin includes in their first table the World Health Organization body mass index categories. And just to quickly go over them, with a BMI that's less than 18.5, that puts people in the underweight category. Normal weight is a BMI that's between 18.5 to 24.9. And anyone who's overweight has a BMI of 25 to 29.9. Obesity is any BMI that's higher than 30. But the WHO actually goes on to classify obesity based on the BMI, and there's obesity class 1, 2, and 3, with class 1 being a BMI of 30 to 34.9, class 2 being 35 to 39.9, and class 3 being 40 or greater. The reason we care about this is that the prevalence of obesity in the United States has increased significantly since the 1990s, and as recently as 2010, the prevalence of obesity has increased to 34% in women between 20 to 39 years of age. So I think, you know, of course, 
obesity, as we know, is very prevalent in the United States, Nick. But specifically for OB-GYN, talk to me a little bit about why we care and how does it affect things like pregnancy? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Faye, we're stuck with BMI as our category with respect to defining obesity, but sort of in these large observational or cohort studies like BMI is the thing that we use to categorize as the exposure to define a risk, right? So with obesity in and of itself, there is an increased risk of spontaneous abortion or miscarriage with an odds ratio of about 1.2 and a risk of recurrent miscarriage with an odds ratio of 3.5 associated with that. There are also risks associated with pregnancy, particularly neural tube defects, hydrocephaly, and other fetal anomalies. With respect to pregnancy beyond just anomalies or pregnancy loss, there are risks of anapartum complications, intrapartum complications, and postpartum complications too. So with anapartum management, again, you worry about the other coincident medical issues that might arise, such as increased risk of cardiac dysfunction, increased risk of proteinuria, sleep apnea, which is one thing that's really underdiagnosed, just generally speaking, but really underdiagnosed in the pregnant population, and underdiagnosis or risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well. Within pregnancy, there's increased risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and stillbirth. And the risk of stillbirth in particular increases with an increasing obesity class. With class 1 obesity, again, with a BMI of 30 to 34.9, the odds ratio for stillbirth is 1.71. For class 2 obesity, BMI 35 to 39.9, that odds ratio increases to 2. And then for BMI over 40 or class 3 obesity, that odds ratio increases to 2.48. If you even go beyond that to BMI over 50, or in some circles is known as sort of like super obesity, that odds ratio even increases further to 3.16 for stillbirth. Um, so again, this is a really, really strong and significant association. Of note, the practice bulletin does point out that women who are black and who are pregnant and have obesity have a higher risk of stillbirth than white pregnant folks. While this is not necessarily a biologic reason, again, is likely a proxy rather for the negative influence of racism on health. Um, and so again, is one of those things that you should continue to monitor for and continue to be mindful of with your particular patient population. Intrapartum risks for folks who are obese include increased risk of cesarean delivery, increased risk for a failed trial of labor, increased risk for endometritis, wound rupture or dehiscence, and also increased risk for venous thrombosis. They're also, for folks who are obese and trying to do a TOLAC, a decreased likelihood of successful TOLAC or VBAC. Postpartum, there's an increased risk of future metabolic dysfunction, particularly those who have gestational diabetes and increased risk of type 2 diabetes later on in life. And then to circle back once more to fetal complications, because I don't think I mentioned it earlier, um, there's an increased risk of fetal growth abnormalities. So we actually do tend to track growth more closely in folks who are obese during the course of their pregnancy. So the short version of all of this is that there are a lot of potential risks of obesity during pregnancy at really any point during the pregnancy. And so even though BMI may not be the perfect category, it's what we've got, and it definitely does seem to track with increased risk. 
So Faye, I know that as MFM fellows, we sometimes and very fortunately get the opportunity to counsel patients before they're pregnant or at least very early on in pregnancy. So how exactly do we manage obesity before or during pregnancy? So we'll break this down into things like pre-pregnancy counseling, you know, during pregnancy, intrapartum and postpartum. And I know that we kind of painted this what sounds like very dire picture for obesity and pregnancy, but be aware that, you know, there are things that we can do to improve outcomes for patients who are obese. Even before pregnancy begins, I think we should discuss the control of obesity with weight loss, either surgical or non-surgical. And just as a reminder, those folks that are eligible for bariatric surgery are those that have a BMI of 40 or above, or those that have a BMI of greater than 35, as well as another comorbidity. So for example, diabetes. Certainly, you know, we wouldn't recommend getting pregnant within that year of having bariatric surgery, but that is something that can be discussed with your patients to really improve outcomes. I want to highlight here that even a small percentage of weight loss can be associated with improved outcomes, and the American Heart Association has recommended weight loss of between 5 or even 10% for patients to really improve their metabolic as well as cardiac um, outcomes. In terms of other things that we can do, we can try things like motivational interviewing, so things like encouraging diet, exercise, and behavior modification, because those are the things that do tend to actually work and keep the weight off. Unfortunately, you know, in pregnancy and in that pre-pregnancy setting, while there are medications that can be used for weight loss, we don't generally recommend them during pregnancy. And so usually that's not something that we would recommend, especially if somebody is already pregnant. During pregnancy, there's also a few other things that we can talk about and try and prevent. And so we'll break this down into things like the recommended weight gain, the congenital anomalies that can occur, um, metabolic disorders, and the risk of stillbirth and antepartum fetal testing. So the first part is the recommended weight gain. So for overweight individuals, so again, in that BMI category of 25 to 29.9, we would recommend a 15 to 25 pound weight gain. So remember in, in patients who have normal BMI, that recommendation is 25 to 35 pounds. In someone who's obese, we would recommend an 11 to 20 pound weight gain. And though there is a lack of data regarding short-term and long-term maternal and newborn outcomes in terms of if women were more obese, so you know women who are who have like a BMI of greater than forty or fifty, there's currently no recommendation for lower targets for that population. So, kind of in general for obese patients, the recommendation is that eleven to twenty pound weight gain. In terms of congenital anomalies, I know you touched on this, Nick, we know that there is an increased risk of congenital anomalies in patients who are obese, especially if they have other risk factors, things like type 2 diabetes and a very high A1C. Unfortunately, in patients who have a higher BMI, the detection of these anomalies is significantly decreased, especially with increasing maternal BMI. Of course, you know, there's risks in terms of ultrasound of missing some of these things, but also the other thing that we do, so NIP or cell-free DNA has a higher chance of having failures in patients who are more obese because we require a minimum fetal fraction. So usually that minimum is about 2 to 4%, kind of depending on which company you're using, but that's usually the needed percentage. And so in someone who is very obese, it may be more difficult to get to that minimum fetal fraction. 
The median fetal fraction between 10 to 14 weeks is about 10%, but with increasing BMI, it's associated with decreased fetal fraction. So in some of these patients, you could consider repeating screening if it's because of early gestation. So for example, you have an obese patient and you get their cell-free DNA right at 10 weeks, but it's not recommended if there are other ultrasound findings that suggest anomaly. And finally, we are going to talk about metabolic disorders and stillbirth. And so make sure that you are screening for glucose intolerance and things like obstructive sleep apnea at the first antenatal visit with history, exam, and labs. And if you do have someone who is there with their partner or with people who sleep in the same room as them, and they tell you that you know they have those warning signs for sleep apnea, these are patients that you should refer to sleep medicine Also, you can consider getting things like an early glucose screen, and if it's negative, consider repeating it at the usual time of 24 to 28 weeks. The last thing that is sometimes a little bit difficult to talk about with your patients is that the obesity does increase the risk of stillbirth. While there may be differences in terms of antepartum fetal testing, there are certainly recommendations for testing in individuals who are obese. And the ACOG practice bulletin suggests considering weekly testing after 37 weeks for BMI of 35 to 39.9, or even consider weekly testing after 34 weeks for a BMI of greater than 40. So we talked a little bit about during pregnancy and right before pregnancy. Nick, talk to me about, you know, what about for those patients who are intrapartum, like they're in labor and in the postpartum period, what um, changes um, or recommendations to their care would we have to try and improve outcomes? So let's break this down into intrapartum and postpartum. Intrapartum care, I think there are a couple of things to consider with respect to C-section risk and other considerations during labor, basically. So intrapartum, basically, women who are obese have an increased risk of cesarean section. There are studies that show an increased length of time in labor, um, and then there are other studies that demonstrate that BMI is not necessarily associated with longer second stage. I think a lot of this boils down ultimately to maybe allowing for more time in the first stage of labor before declaring a C-section for a failed induction or failed active stage in those who are obese. Though again, the evidence for that is kind of shaky at this point and I think is still evolving. With respect to those who have had a C-section before and you're thinking about TOLAC risk, because again, we mentioned a little bit earlier, Faye, that folks who are more obese have a lower likelihood of a successful VBAC. Um, At the same time, though, they have also a higher likelihood of complications with an elective repeat cesarean section with all of those things we also mentioned earlier, like wound infections and endometritis. Um, So even though the TOLAC success rate may be lower, it's not necessarily an indication to not attempt to TOLAC with them. I think really a lot of that matters in terms of sort of what the history is and you're weighing exactly what might be the risk of doing a repeat cesarean section versus trialing a attempt at labor. During labor itself, um, you should consider anesthesia consultation, especially if a patient has obstructive sleep apnea. Um, not only are you dealing with a more difficult airway in the patient who is obese, but you're also dealing with a more difficult epidural or spinal placement. And so in those situations where you're wanting to place an epidural because someone's getting uncomfortable 
or you're worried about the baby, or even if you're moving towards the back for a C-section and you're wanting to place a spinal really quickly, it may not always be technically feasible in someone who is obese or super obese. And so getting an anesthesia consult beforehand, so that way they can be familiar with the patient and know exactly what they need to be considering beforehand is really a good option. One thing also that I see frequently when we consider antibiotics for cesarean section for those who are obese is that the amount of antibiotic needs to be increased. So the usual before cesarean section is two grams of cefazolin or ANSEF. Uh, but if someone is weighing over 120 kilograms, there's actually randomized trial evidence that you should be increasing that dose to three grams of cefazolin. So don't forget to ask for that and demand that truthfully for your patients who are obese at the time of cesarean section. Let's move on to postpartum care. So for folks who are obese, there's an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. So you should definitely at least at a baseline, encourage use of um, pneumatic compression devices, encourage early mobilization. Um, and then depending on your institution too, and sort of the read of the evidence, you might consider in high-risk groups the use of pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis. The dose can be BMI stratified and sort of the recommendation that exists here on best expert opinion is that if BMI is under 40, you should be using 40 milligrams of Lovenox sub-Q daily. In someone who's got a BMI between 40 and 59.9, you could use 40 milligrams twice daily. And if the BMI is over 60, using 60 milligrams twice daily. Um, the evidence is still evolving on this. And so again, depending on what exactly you read, you might find folks who are much more aggressive or permissive about the use of pharmacologic prophylaxis and others who would say that there's not any additional benefit to that and much more strongly use mechanical methods as opposed to pharmacologic methods. I think that's something that is going to continue to evolve and really be interesting over the next several years. So if you're into OB, keep an eye out on that or start your own study. Good fellow research project. <laughs> All right, Faye, I think that does it for us for this podcast on obesity and pregnancy. So why don't we try to summarize? Sure. So we started off by talking about the definition and epidemiology of obesity. So remember that obesity is defined by a BMI of greater than 30, and obesity can be further broken down into different classes, class 1, class 2, class 3, based on the BMI. Again, while we know that the body mass index is not the perfect way of measuring obesity and body fat percentage, for example, it's unfortunately what we have to use by proxy because of ease of use. The reason we care is because the prevalence of obesity has increased to 34% in women between 20 to 39 years of age in 2010. With respect to obesity and pregnancy, we know that, again, based on BMI categories, there are a number of potential complications that seem to track with BMI. Some of those complications include an increased risk of miscarriage or recurrent miscarriage, increased risk of growth restriction, neural tube defects, hydrocephaly, other anomalies, and then also increased risk of pregnancy complications, such as anapartum complications like cardiac dysfunction, proteinuria, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia stillbirth, most importantly, um, and then intrapartum increased risk of cesarean delivery, failed trial of labor, wounds rupture, dehiscence, enematritis, decreased likelihood of VBAC during a trial of labor. 
In terms of counseling about obesity before and during pregnancy, if you're fortunate enough to see your patients before pregnancy, certainly talking to them about the risks of obesity and encouraging weight loss, either through surgical or non-surgical methods. In terms of during pregnancy, we can talk to them about the recommendations for weight gain. So again, in obese individuals, a recommendation of 11 to 20 pounds. And then also discuss with them the implications of testing for things like congenital anomalies. And so while they're at higher risk for congenital anomalies, understanding that ultrasound may be less effective in someone who's obese and even cell-free DNA have higher rates of failure because of decreased fetal fraction. In terms of metabolic disorders and other issues during pregnancy, making sure to screen for things like OSA, as well as an early gestational glucose screen, and then also discussing with their patients based on their BMI, the risk of stillbirth and recommendation for fetal testing. In the intrapartum period for folks who are obese, there's an increased risk of cesarean section. Pregnant folks with higher BMI, though, have a higher rate of complications with elective repeat cesarean section. If you're doing a TOLAC for somebody, that's not necessarily a reason to throw in the towel early. Um, You just have to weigh your risks and benefits. During labor itself, you should consider an anesthesia consultation, especially if the patient has obstructive sleep apnea because epidural may be more technically difficult to place, but you're also balancing that with the higher risk airway in someone who's obese. And most, most importantly, there's randomized trial evidence to increase your use of cefazolin preoperatively to three grams if the patient weighs more than 120 kilograms. Postpartum, there's an increased risk of venous thromboembolism in obese women. So depending on your institutional policy, um, you may use pharmacologic prophylaxis in addition to mechanical prophylaxis. In higher risk groups, the dose can be BMI stratified. So for a BMI less than 40, suggested dose might be 40 milligrams of anoxaparin daily. Between 40 and 60, the use of 40 milligrams twice daily. And then someone who's got a BMI over 60 using 60 milligrams twice daily could be part of your protocol. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and you can also find us on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Give us a donation and we may give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a question for us, an idea for a show, or a correction, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 